Well, good morning. How is everybody? Well, if you turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Jonah chapter 3, we'll dive into the Word in just a moment. But I thought I'd start by following uh, Johnny's example from last week and share a little bit about my history here with Calvary Chapel, in case you don't know me very well. My name is Paul, and um, I showed up here in uh, 1993 with my family. Back then, I had one wife <laughs> and three, three young children, and uh, I was 33 years old, and uh, Johnny uh, was one when I showed up, and I remembered he wasn't, he wasn't the most beautiful baby, <laughs> but look at him now. Look at him now. He is something else, and in fact, well, yeah, so that was 20, 28 years ago, and uh, now I have four adult children, and uh, our ninth grandchild is on the way, so we're excited about that. And Johnny now is 29 today. So can we say happy birthday? <laughs> happy birthday, Johnny. All right. Well, so um, now I'm 60, and I'm, I qualify for Pastor Kevin's special prayer group called Senior Leaders at Calvary. And uh, I'm sure he's thinking, even though the letters spell slack, um, there are, there's no slacking. There's no slacking. So here I am. And there you are. All right. So good morning. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? And we will get started. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And, or excuse me, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then uh, word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by de the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Fathers, we look into your word this morning once again. Um, we ask that you would bless uh, our time, bless our uh, hearing of your word. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying this morning through the story of Jonah. So much, Lord, that you're teaching us uh, by this man and his walk with you, his, his disobedience, and yet we see some repentance, and we see you, that you are a God who's patient and compassionate with Jonah as well as all of these people. And so open our eyes to see you more clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning, um, 
If you're just joining us, we're continuing in our story of Jonah. In chapter 1, we saw God's call and Jonah's disobedience. Because God said to the prophet, go east, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. But Jonah, because he had hardened his heart toward the Ninevites, the arch enemy of Israel, he went the opposite direction, as we know. He boarded a ship at Joppa, and he set sail for Tarshish. It's interesting that some people believe Tarshish could be the name of a destination as far away as North America. It's possible. In any event, it was far. It was the opposite direction. And the point is that Jonah disobeyed the Lord because he thought he could run from God. I think Jonah assumed that if he got as far away as possible that God would choose someone else. Maybe. But no, we know that's not what happened, right? God used a storm to disrupt Jonah's Mediterranean cruise. And then we see Jonah confessed his sin in defiance of God's call to the sailors. Remember that? He confessed. He told them he had fled from the Lord and that God uh, had caused the storm because of his disobedience. So the sailors reluctantly did as Jonah said, and they tossed him into the sea. Then it says that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before God had the fish spew him up on the beach back on the way to Nineveh. Now, Jesus referred to Jonah's experience as a prophetic sign, a prophetic sign given to Israel of Jesus, of his death, his burial, and resurrection after being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So no, Jonah, the story of Jonah is not an allegory. It's not just a great Bible story used in millions of children's books, although some, some say it's just a tale of a whale or a whale of a tale. Or, okay, it's not that. But it, it is very easy to get distracted with the, all the conjectures that are discussed about the book of Jonah. For example, was it a whale? Was it a sea monster? You know, uh, it's inter- there's lots of conjectures on these things. Some Hebrew and Greek scholars believe that it was actually a great white shark based on the, the word that was used, great fish, but they think it was a great white shark. There's been reports of these great white sharks in the, in the Mediterranean as, as long as 30 feet, 30 feet long. They've cut live fish out of them, bigger than a man. Okay, so very, you know, very interesting, some of these things. How many of you are thinking of Jaws right now when I see great white shark? Dun, 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 dun. So I, I watched that too many times. But it got me thinking, you know, sharks usually just chew things up, right? They just chew things up. So here's my theory. If, remember Daniel in the lion's den? So if God can use an, an, an angel to shut the mouths of lions so they don't, don't hurt Daniel, God can use an angel to hold the great white's mouth open so it, it just swallows Jonah. Are you with me? It's, it's, it's just, you know, it just makes sense. So the great white possibly swallows Jonah. Now, how many of you have seen big fish like that in the wild? Raise your hand. In the wild. Okay, some of you, that you got some stories to tell. 
I got to see one as a boy, and it is, it's pretty awesome. We were, we were young boys, my brother and I, we fished a lot off a dock down in Nisqually Valley. Big dock, it, it stood like 40 feet over the, over the water. We were looking out one, one time, we were on the dock, and we saw a dorsal fin, I'm not kidding, a dorsal fin coming up the middle of the sound, Puget Sound, and all of a sudden, it just turned right towards us. It came right to the dock. I don't know if that's because we were throwing stuff in or whatever, but it came right to the dock, and it swam right next to the dock. I had a perfect aerial view of this huge fish in the Puget Sound, and I remember as a boy thinking, that thing is as wide as my dad's car. <laughs> it was big, and it came right by the dock, and it went right back up. So that's why I never go kayaking in the Sound. <laughs> Anybody kayak in the Puget Sound? Okay, I don't advise it, okay? There's big stuff out there. But see how easily we get sidetracked. Okay, let's get back. What is the book of Jonah? What is the book of Jonah all about? All right? What are its great themes? One of the great themes of the book of Jonah is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Psalm 135, 5 through 7 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, and in the seas and all the deep places. Isn't that interesting? This verse includes the seas and the deep places. So God is sovereign, amen? God is sovereign. His throne is in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. Now that could be a scary thought. God does whatever he pleases. But aren't we glad that God is not a tyrant? Amen? God, our God is not a tyrant. We know that God is good. He loves the world. And we see in the story of Jonah that God is also compassionate and merciful. Because if God was only sovereign, uh, without being good, we'd be in some real trouble. It, that would be a scary thing. We'd live in so much fear and so much insecurity. Now, I like to rewatch some of these uh, epic movies that are out there, these you know, huge battle scenes. And I was watching one recently. Uh, the, they have several movies on the story of Troy. You know, and the Greek gods cross the sea to, to attack the city, and they finally get in with the Trojan horse. You know, and that's a fable I found out, but it's a great story. But the, it's, it's true that Troy was attacked and that it was burned and all that. But these movies, they're kind of historical fiction, but they, they brought out the fact that the, the Greeks were polytheists, right? They believed in many gods. And they brought this out in the, in the movie I was watching that they lived, a lot of them lived in a lot of fear. A lot of fear. You know, not knowing what's going to make the gods angry. You know, how, how do we appease them? And what kind of sacrifices do we need to offer to appease the gods? And so it just, you know, it just made me thankful. Not our God, Amen. God is sovereign, but he is good, and he is a God of compassion, and his mercy endures forever. And we see the sovereignty of God all through the story of Jonah. We see it by what God chooses to do. What he chooses to do, what he chooses to prepare, and what he causes to happen. For example, God could have chosen to just write it in the sky above the city of Nineveh. Repent, you know, put it in the clouds. Forty days or judgment. But instead, God chose hard-hearted Jonah, who hated his enemies. He lost all compassion for them. 
who himself needed to repent from his attitude and his disobedience to God's call. Then we see God's sovereignty. God chose a storm. It's one more example of his sovereignty. Also his choice to prepare a great fish to swallow Jonah. So it got me thinking, can God and doesn't God order his creation and his creatures to accomplish his will for you and for me? It's interesting to think about. I mean, as you keep reading into the New Testament, uh, you'll see it again. When God chooses, well, actually he chose both dead and live fish to accomplish his will, since we're talking about fish. So, for example, Jesus multiplied a few dead fish that a boy had caught. Remember, he brought it to Jesus and he multiplied the dead fish, the cooked fish. It's not roadkill, but it's, you know, it's, it's prepared fish to feed thousands of people. And later in Matthew 17, Jesus commanded one live fish to swallow a coin. Remember that story? So, so Peter could find the coin and pay the temple tax that the Pharisees were demanding. Now, someone said, this, this shows that if God wants me to pay my taxes, you know, he's going to provide in miraculous ways extra funds. But I think it just shows that you can get the Bible to say whatever you want it to say if you ignore the context. But the point is that God orders his creation. Sovereignly, God chooses. And even to the point of dead fish. But what is the story of Jonah all about? Here's a little outline for you, you note takers. Uh, Here's the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, we see God's call and Jonah's disobedience and a great fish. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see God's control and Jonah's repentance and a great prayer. In chapter 3, we'll see God's compassion, Jonah's obedience, and a great repentance. Chapter 4, you've got to come next week, okay, to see uh, from our guest speaker. All right? So let's, let's glean a few things from chapter 3 this morning. Let's look, we'll look at God's compassion, Jonah's obedience, and a great repentance. So notice right off the bat what it says in verse 1. We don't want to miss this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. This shows that our God is the God of the second chance, amen, and the third, and the fourth, and the 44th. God is the God of the second chance, because Jonah did everything he could to resist the first call of God. God was calling him to do something he was unwilling to do, something that he ought to have been willing to do, but Jonah resisted the will of God. Jonah disobeyed God's call. He tried running the other direction. What did Jonah's sin deserve? God had every right to remove his blessing from Jonah's Mediterranean cruise. But God had every right to say, Jonah, you're out of here. I'm done with you. I've had it. I changed my mind about having the angel hold the shark's jaws open. You know, he could have said, Jonah, I'm done. God had every right. But our God is the God of the second chance and the third, and the fourth, and the 44th. Because God is so patient with us. When we're running the other direction, this ought to be so encouraging to all of us. 
that God is a God of the second chance. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering with us. He waits patiently for our repentance. He waits patiently for us to return and to answer his call. Repentance is another one of the grand themes of the book of Jonah. We'll look at Nineveh's repentance here in chapter 3 in a moment. But we also see Jonah's repentance. When did Jonah begin to repent? I think we see it back uh, in chapter 1. We'll see that it was more than a one-time event. It had a beginning, but it had to continue. His repentance had to continue, and it had to mature. Repentance, repentance is an event, but it can also be a process. It's a returning and a continual turning to God because we repent from sin and toward God. It's a change in direction of what our hearts are pursuing. So there was an indication of Jonah's repentance back in chapter 1, you may remember, where it describes how Jonah responded to the sailors who questioned him. He said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It was an honest confession, an honest confession of his true identity and his faith in God and where the direction of his heart needed to continue. Then he willingly allowed himself to be cast into the sea. This shows a surrender to God's will at that point. A surrender, as we looked at last week. Another indication of Jonah's repentance is, is he cried out from the belly of the fish. We saw last week the great prayer in chapter 2. Jonah acknowledged the truth. That he should stop resisting God. That he should keep his vows and do what the Lord was calling him to do. And his triumphal, triumphant declaration in verse 9 of chapter 2 was, salvation is of the Lord. In other words, Jonah confesses, God has saved, and he will continue to save. Jonah knew that salvation was of the Lord, salvation for himself, as well as for everyone else. Now, I heard someone ask the question recently, isn't Repentance just for the unbeliever? So once you've confessed your sin to God and believed in Jesus Christ and are saved, you're, you're done with repentance, right? Well, no, not, not exactly. It's true there is a repentance necessary that leads to salvation. Amen? I think most of us here know that. But we who are in Christ, we need to walk in repentance every day. We'll talk about that. Because repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction, a humbly returning to the Lord. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul said he was faithful to preach repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's about the direction and what our hearts are pursuing. Because we, again, can return to our idols we again can turn to false gods in our life. We again can begin to trust in them and even love what they provide for us. We can again make ourselves a slave to sin. And repentance can be a process because there is often a struggle, a struggle of letting go. 
And it can be like a wrestling match with ourselves and with the Lord. But every time we surrender, listen, every time we surrender and acknowledge the truth and confess honestly to God, there's freedom. There's freedom and there is growth and there's transformation because our hearts are changed and they become aligned with God's heart. So we see the process for Jonah. We see the progress from his confession to the sailors, to his surrender to God's will thrown into the sea, to his crying out to God from the belly of the fish, and his commitment to do the will of the Lord here in chapter 3. But some of you are thinking, but wait, remember chapter 4, okay? Even after he disobeyed the voice of the Lord and delivered God's message to the Ninevites, we see in chapter 4 the wrestling in the process of repentance continues. The wrestling for Jonah to forsake his idol. I think one of the jo Jonah's idols was himself. The idol of self and pride and self-righteousness. Here's a definition of self-righteousness I heard recently. Self-righteousness is the view you have of yourself and the position that you've taken and the belief that you think you are right. Regardless of what the word of the Lord may say. Again, self-righteousness is a view you have of yourself, the position you have taken, and the belief that you are right. Regardless of what God's word may declare. Look at Jonah's continual struggle as he is still in this process of repentance. From, from, we're we're going to jump to uh, chapter 4 just for a moment. Verse 1, it says, But it, Nineveh's repentance, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was, I, was this not what I said when I was in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. Wah, wah, wah. Anyway, we'll get more into that next week. But lo and behold, Jonah's heart was not yet fully aligned with God's. Jonah continued to wrestle with his attitude. His heart vacillated in the direction it was pursuing. He was still entertaining his prideful thoughts. He struggled to let go of his beliefs that these people deserve judgment. These people are not deserving of God's compassion, nor deserving of any opportunity to repent. In Jonah's mind, the Ninevites had gone too far. The world would be a better place without them. Now, can any of you relate to the process of repentance? It's a process, the struggle, the wrestling. I can. But it's a, it's a process that must continue. Again, but every time we surrender, we acknowledge the truth and confess honestly to God, there's freedom. There's freedom and there's growth and there's transformation because the Spirit of God will change our hearts and align it with God's. So God waits patiently and the Spirit of God is at work within us. Amen? The Spirit of God is at work within us, helping us, convicting us, 
until we get to 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How glorious that is. Then we can walk in God's forgiveness and the freedom we have in Christ. But we must also continue to pursue God in an attitude of repentance, a continual turning away from sin and a turning towards God, keeping our hearts aligned with his. So when we're in this process of repentance, still struggling to fully give in and let go, not yet fully surrendered, still holding on to the idol, still believing we have our good reasons, but maybe we've acknowledged the truth. We've begun to acknowledge the truth, and our, our heart is beginning to become aligned, but the struggle continues. I think this morning the Lord wants us to be encouraged, if that's you, if that's me. Be encouraged that God is that loving Heavenly Father. Remember the story of the prodigal son? God is the loving Heavenly Father, ready to run and meet us, more than halfway. Ready to run and meet us when we fully acknowledge the truth and we humbly return to him. The Spirit of God is at work because there's a brokenness that needs to take place. A brokenness over our sin. A contrite heart that says, I have sinned against God. And my sin has affected others. And it breaks my heart. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and such as have a contrite spirit. So I was wondering, why do we often stop short of having this honest conversation with God? Why do we stop short? I think, again, like Jonah, I think one reason is our pride. Our pride brings an unwillingness to own, to own our part. Unwillingness to take responsibility. It also leads us, like Adam and Eve, it leads us to blame others to blame each other, to make excuses. Another reason may be, you know, we're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart. We're still loving our idol and what it provides for us. We can love that. Even when it's harming us and it's destructive to our lives and our relationships. But like Jonah, we struggle with repentance and with the acknowledging the truth and agreeing with God, even making peace sometimes with just being in bondage to the false god in our lives. By the way, those false gods in our lives, they are the tyrants. They are the tyrants without compassion who will enslave us. But I think also we stop short of this honest conversation with God because, we, again, we lose sight that God is good. God is good, he's merciful, he's kind and gentle, he's ready to forgive and restore us to his fellowship. Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. It doesn't say he stands ready to punish you. We, we can wrestle with that too. It doesn't say he stands ready to punish you. Jesus took all that our sin deserve upon himself. Amen? He took all, of our, all that our sins deserve upon himself. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It's the idols and false gods we may turn to that lead to destruction. Often we are already suffering from the consequences of having turned to them and become enslaved by them, being deceived by them. But Jesus said, the truth will set you free. It's interesting, a few verses later it says, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That tells me that Jesus is always personally involved with us individually in setting us free. And he uses the truth. If we'll repent and walk in the truth and in the light as God is in the light, he will minister to us his forgiveness and his cleansing and restore us to his fellowship. Now, you know, I'd like to think that Jonah actually arrived there at some point. I'd like to think that he fully repented. He found salvation from, from that idol and that sin and self and freedom from pride and judgmentalism. And ultimately, I'd like to believe that his heart became aligned with God's to the point that he could pray for his enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love your enemies. That's the love of God, amen? You know, I think there could be a little bit of Jonah in all of us. I heard someone uh, recently say that after reading the book of Jonah, God spoke to them and said, who are your Ninevites? It was very convicting. God said to him, who are your Ninevites? He said, are, are there people in your life or in the world today who you would rather see judged by God than have an opportunity to repent? Have you, have you ever embraced the idea, why don't we just gather them all up, send them to an island and let them have at each other and, be, and then we'd be done with them? Watch out. God is gracious. God is merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We may need to check our, our own hearts and get them aligned with God in that. I know I do. Amen? Jesus has already called us to go into all the world and share the gospel. But who are your Ninevites? It's an interesting question. But let's go forward. Let's look at Nineveh's repentance in verse 3 of Jonah 3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey just to walk through it. So remember Nineveh, the largest city in the ancient world, larger than Babylon, the uh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, over a million people. They said the, they, from the excavation, they said the walls were so high and wide they could have chariot races on top. 
huge. The huge gates, I'm told, are among the Assyrian artifacts in a museum in, in Chicago. The Ninevites were the most violent and vicious people we know of who ever existed. They put the fear of themselves into everyone in the Middle East. They carried out the greatest brutalities on their enemies, including crucifixion, by the way. They invented crucifixion. The Romans later, we know, perfected that. But according to chapter 4, God also pointed out to Jonah that there was more than 120,000 young children in the city. It says that who don't know their right hand from their left. And God even mentions to Jonah, and there's much livestock. Should I not pity them? Should I not have compassion? God asked Jonah. So another one, one, one of the wonderful themes of the book of Jonah is God's compassion. Even for the sake of the livestock and the cattle and the sheep and the goats and the donkeys, his, his compassion extends even to them. They were on God's mind and a reason why he could, should show compassion and relent from judgment on the Ninevites. God's heart of compassion got me thinking. It extends even to the animals. It's important how we treat our pets. Amen? Is it important? I think it is. Because how we treat our pets demonstrates where our heart is at. Is our heart aligned with God's? Okay? This is convicting for some of us. Okay? Um, it reminded me of Balaam's donkey. Okay? This is a great story. If you, you know, God had opened the mouth of the donkey so the donkey and Balaam could have a conversation. And it was after the donkey had seen the angel of the Lord and had caused the donkey to press up against the wall because the, it sees the angel and it crushes Jonah's foot. Some of you remember the story. Soon after that, the donkey sits down and won't go any further. And it says, both times Balaam struck his donkey. He struck her. He was angry. I just want to read this from Numbers 22 because it makes the point. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? However, you know. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do something like this before? And Balaam said, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now. And let her live. So, does God call, care about how we treat our, our animals, treat our pets? Balaam and Jonah apparently did not have much compassion and seemed to care less. So this is really convicting for me because I have not been the most compassionate pet owner. Um, so don't get, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't ever mistreat animals or, you know, I take care of them when they need it, but I'm, I've always been, since my youth, a little bit of a, a, little bit of a teaser with, with my pets. I mean, when there was, we, I grew up with a big family cat 
big calico cat that would sleep on my bed. And I would sneak into the bedroom, you know, get my hand under the bed cover and start, you know, doing this kind of thing. And the cat would just go berserk. I think the cat knew that when I was coming around, she's like, you know, what's he going to do next? So, you know, do you know if you, if you take a cat <laughs> and you hold it upside down, just, I mean, just a few inches from the floor, it'll land on its feet. It's just, I think I just like to draw out their basic instincts. It's fascinating. Without hurting them, of course. Now here, recently I was convicted by someone to the extent of their compassion for their pet. Their daughter, I think it's his daughter, owned a snake, pet snake. Anybody like reptiles? Okay, we don't do spiders or snakes. but Pet snake. And this snake got sick. Snake stopped eating. They took it to the vet. And I, I, he said it was up to like $1,000 of x-rays, treatments to get this snake well again. Pet snake. But his compassion was shown when he agreed to provide long-term in-home health care for the snake himself <laughs> by administering medication with injections to the snake. And he said it, it didn't go well. But the snake recovered, okay? The snake recovered. But I just thought this, this guy's got compassion. This is compassion. And it, it was put me to shame. But if we have any compassion, it's to the glory of God, amen? He is a God of compassion, the author of compassion. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. So going on, look at verse 4 of Jonah 3. It says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now I was listening to uh, Pastor David Hawking. Some of you know him. He's met with Jewish rabbis on the book of Jonah, and one rabbi said, No other chapter in all the Old Testament so reveals the compassionate heart of God as Jonah chapter 3. No other, and no other statement is so shocking in all the Bible as verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God. Shocking. Jonah's message was just five words. In the Hebrew. English, it takes eight words. Just five words. And again, we can get all sidetracked with a lot of conjecture on the book of Jonah because there's a lot of things that it doesn't say. A lot of things that it doesn't say, a lot of things that we're not told. But, you know, when the Bible is silent, I think it's silent on some of these things for a reason. It's silent for a reason because the author, the Holy Spirit, wants us to focus on and understand some very specific things. We'll look at those in a moment, but many try to explain why did the Ninevites repent? Why did they listen to Jonah's message? Why did they turn from their evil and turn to the Lord? Some say they repented because of recent events that took place just prior to Jonah's arrival. In the history records show in 765 B.C. there was a terrible plague. 
terrible plague in the city. There was a severe loss of life, and many people died. So some suggest that this made the Ninevites ripe for Jonah's message about judgment. Others uh, say that the records show that shortly after the plague, there was a total solar eclipse. And this is in the deserts, desert of Iraq, which could be a, a very dreadful, fearful thing based on their pagan beliefs when they lose sunlight in the middle of the day. That could have made them ripe for Jonah's message. Others say it was Jonah's appearance because when they cut these fish out of the great white sharks, they're, they're, they look totally bleached. These they're still alive, but they're totally bleached. So Jonah may have been this, looked like this bleached, maybe barnacle-faced man, you know, walking th through Nineveh, you know, repent, or 40 days. You know, he, he'd been stewing in the gastric juices of the fish. And even some look to what Jesus said about Jonah to back up this idea in Luke 11. It says, while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. And no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Then it says, for as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be this to this generation. So again, someone, some think that Jesus is saying that Jonah himself and his appearance was the sign and caused the Ninevites to repent. Others suggest that Jonah also told his story in addition to his message. He told how, what God had done through the storm and the fish and the spew and to get him there. You know, and, you know, and that may be why they repented when he said, you know, this, our God is an awesome God. You better listen up. It could be he shared his story. It's interesting also the fact that the Ninevites worshipped the fish god was one of their gods, was the fish god named Dagon. He also, we saw, also see him as a, one of the gods of the Philistines. D Dagon was believed to be part man, part fish. And there, the ancient writings of the Assyrians say that Dagon would be incarnated to be fully man. And his name would be Onis in Assyrian, which is, in Hebrew is Jonas or Jonah. Interesting. The problem I have with that theory is that if they made the connection between Jonah and their fish god, it would only encourage them to continue in their pagan beliefs. So it doesn't really hold water. But here's what I think. I think the complete repentance of Nineveh was a miracle of God. When the population of an entire city repents, they humble themselves and believe God's warning of pending judgment, turn from their evil and their violence, when they change their minds and fear the God of the Hebrews, who was proclaimed to be the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. Remember when Jonah told that to the sailors. He said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It says the sailors became exceedingly afraid. That's the work of the Spirit of God. When they acknowledge the truth of their evil and look to the one true God to save them, their faith was met with the grace of God to change their hearts. Look again at verse 4 in Jonah chapter 3. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now back in Luke 11, the men, uh, it says, the men of Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it before they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And indeed, one greater than Jonah is here. Because those in Jesus' day wanted to see a sign. But, the, but people don't repent and believe just because they see a sign. That's what the Bible says. People do not repent and believe because they just see a sign or because they're just looking for another miracle. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 16 because Jesus made this point in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the Apostle Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that people are only saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God. It is not because they look for a sign or because they witnessed a miracle. Luke 16, starting verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus his evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes up to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Interesting. I would say, no matter what Jonah looked like, it was not enough to turn the people to the Lord. Why were the people of Nineveh saved from the judgment of God? I think it's the same reason you and I become saved. They believed the message of God. They turned from their evil ways. They looked in faith to the one true God to have mercy on them, and their faith was met with the, with the power of God's Spirit to change their hearts. This has always been the way of salvation. John the Baptist preached the same message. He is the last prophet before Jesus went to the cross. Did you know that? He's really the last prophet of the Old Testament. His message was preach, or excuse me, his the message he preached was repent for the remission of sins. And then Jesus himself, his message was repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Peter preached, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, repentance is not a popular message in the pulpits across America today. Some of you know that. Some pastors think it's too negative. Some say it's not what people want to hear. Some only preach how God will bless your life if you just have enough faith. But is that the message of the Bible? Is that the true gospel? Have we lost sight of the message for authentic repentance for the people of God 
the message of the need for sanctification and for holiness. Let's go on. Notice in verse 6, their repentance included everyone, from the least to the greatest. Even their king and his nobles caused him to put out a tweet, so to speak, to all the people. Verse 6, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat nor drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his first fierce anger so that they may not perish? Wouldn't it be awesome to see some of this, uh, some repentance in our leaders today? The king of Nineveh. Our leaders today, they don't need a barnacle-faced, bleached prophet to be spewed up on the shores of Washington, D.C. <laughs> they don't need that. What do they need? They need to repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a complete change of direction, a change of mind, turning from evil, turning toward God, trusting in his mercy, and looking to him from sal for salvation from judgment. And we know that no other name has been given under heaven by which we may be saved than the one who came in the flesh, right? And walked among us and gave himself for us. The one who passed, from the heaven, passed through the heavens, who lives and was dead and behold is alive forevermore, amen? Jesus alone saves. But look at verse 10. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The king personally depended on God for forgiveness and mercy. And then it says, God saw their works. God saw their works. God sees the fruit of our repentance. He sees the evidence of a changed heart and mind. He sees the forsaking of evil and idolatry. And God sees our works. Then it says God relented. This is interesting. God in his righteousness and justice was intent on judging Nineveh for their evil. He was intent on it. But God in his compassion and mercy relented when he saw their works that they had turned from their evil way. Now this is written for us, for our benefit, to understand that God can change his mind. In a way that is consistent with his nature. They re if they repent, then he will relent. God's plans change because of his character and who he is that does not change. Are you with me? And this is why we can cry out to him today. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So I just want to end this message today on a, a, just a personal exhortation for all of us, and the worship team can, can come on out. But listen, it is the devil's trap to think that you and I do not need repentance, that you and I do not need to get right with God. 
to think that repentance was just a once and for all thing so I could be saved and have, make sure I'm going to heaven. Or to think that you can just keep going because God is gracious and merciful and, and always loves me. Or to think that you can work it out yourself without taking it to the Lord in prayer and have that honest conversation with God. We need to respond like the Ninevites when there's a need for repentance. So the question this morning for all of us is, do we need to cry out to God? Do we need to confess our sin to him and turn from some idolatry, some evil way, some pride, self-righteousness? Do we need to return, align our hearts with him, walk in the light as he is in the light? Because let's not fool ourselves, amen? Let's not fool ourselves. God does not look the other way. He doesn't look the other way. He loves us too much. And I'm including myself in this. We need to get right with God. To put off whatever we've been doing and return in our hearts to the Lord. Jesus said this needs to be worked out between you, for me, needs to be worked out in the secret place, in the private place of prayer. Amen? Okay, will you stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for this message this morning. We are so thankful, God, that you are a God of compassion. You are a God of, of patience, merciful. You stand ready to forgive. Lord, in this morning, once again, we want to agree with you that we need to walk in repentance, a continual turning from sin, idolatry, evil, whatever it is, Lord, a continual turning towards you to walk with you in the light, pursuing you, God, following you, Jesus. And you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're so thankful for that. And we worship you, Lord.